I was told that the New Year's greeting is good for two weeks, so Happy New Year. Just to reiterate for the Thrive that's happening right now, um, I definitely encourage you uh, to, take, to check that out. I think apologetics um, sometimes can be treated like the stepchild of the faith, but I think it's an essential. I think it's, it's necessary. It doesn't mean that you have to become a world-renowned apologist, an author, or whatever it is, or debater, um, but you should be able to answer the question, why? Why are you a Christian? I think it's a fundamental question that you should be able to answer it. Um, in apologetics, what it does is it equips the Christian uh, after the Christian is living a faithful life and going through things, going through hardships and worshiping the Lord, having enemies and loving them as siblings. All these things you'll do, people will ask why. And you can give a reason for the hope that's in you. And it's equipping us to do that in a different, uh, certain different context. Um, and I think it's extremely important. Um, so definitely check that out if you get an opportunity to. Uh, it's going six weeks, but it's split up into different topics. So even if you could just peek in for one topic, that would be very beneficial. This passage, um, the entire chapter, I wanted to uh, utilize this entire chapter because um, Mark begins his biography of Jesus' life with the beginning of the gospel of Christ. And he ends it with the resurrection. I was going through a Twitter debate um, I wasn't in one. I was looking. I was reading through one Twitter debate. I don't recommend this. And as I was going through the thread, there was an atheist debating with a Christian, and they were debating on the authenticity of the Bible. The Christian, obviously, you know, the Bible's authenticity, how it can be validated, veracity, historicity, all those things. And the atheist is like, look, man, um, it's old. It's old. And if you've seen these conversations, even if you've been in them before, you, you'll, you'll probably learn that a lot of uh, opposition towards the Christian faith, a lot of arguments waged against Christianity are often just, just recycled, redressed, and reused. Um, Christianity's pretty old, uh, but that's probably one of the main ones. The antiquated nature of the Bible and everybody in it, man, the Bible's old. And the people are old and so dead. And so the atheist's argument was something like that. It's like, you people really believe the flawed writings of uneducated men writing fantastical things that supposedly took place 2,000 years ago? I mean, 2,000 years ago? And then the Christian's reply, he simply said, 2,000 years since what? I think something that we often miss about Christianity and other religions is that no matter what it is, no matter what the religion is, where it came from, how long it's been, who were the main adherents, who started it, every religion is a truth claim. It is a truth claim. It's a claim of how the world is, how we are, and how we ought to see these things as a result of this being the way it is. How we ought to live as a result of this being the way it is. Christianity is a truth claim. And so the Christian's reply in this debate is actually a little subtle, but it's profound. 
Because this opponent, he can recognize that the Bible exists, that Christians exist, you know, this religion has existed. Um, or it might be a little kooky in his eyes, you know, believing in this fairy God that's um, it's always bearded in the sky. I don't know why that is, but it, 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 we believe in this make-believe God that sits up in the sky. Meanwhile, something as essential as our calendar has been affected by this fairy tale. You're familiar with knowing the eras of our calendar and our time split up into what, because of our secular society now, it's more before common era and common era. But before that, it was B.C. and A.D. Before Christ, and when I was a kid, I used to think it meant after death. But Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, or the year of the Lord, This is significant because our very calendar hinges on the birth of Christ. Today we are in A.D. 2023. But here's what's interesting. It isn't the birth of Christ that motivated and brought forth the eventual recognition of this split in our calendar. It was the resurrection. We have the full package. We can read the story. We, we know the story of Christ. We, we know the prophecy because the scripture is divinely inspired and we see the full story. But in real time, only some people understood the prophecy and the text and this baby was born. And then there's this guy that everybody saw die. And he rose from the dead. And it validated the birth. See, even those who knew about the birth, like John the Baptist, he needed some assurance. Is this the Messiah? Are you really him? The resurrection validated that. I think we certainly need to know what makes us a Christian. The resurrection is uh, essential to our faith. Being a disciple of Jesus is being a believer in his bodily resurrection. This, is, this preceded his sacrificial death. And it's the resurrection that seals us into the promise of life with him in all eternity. But it also grants us the power and ability to live a life unto God today, right now, devoted to him. So in the spirit of apologetics, I'm going to spend some time making a defense. Make a defense of why you ought to be a Christian. I'm going to look at little three arguments on why you ought to be a Christian as a result of believing in the resurrection and the resurrection narrative, why it's true. But then I'm going to walk through why it matters to us. And then how the Christian ought to live a resurrection life today. And ultimately, my, my hope would be that you know why you ought to be a Christian. You can answer the question, why am I a Christian? And in our ability to be able to answer that question, I hope that our lives resemble the answer that we give. The claim of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the claim of the resurrection of this rabbi, this Palestinian Jew who taught these fishermen, was mocked, spat on, died, and rose again. It's a ridiculous claim. 
contextually speaking. You think about the people who lived in first century um, Middle Eastern times, and uh, this is quite ridiculous. Now, you look at the gospel narrative, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all find their culmination of the gospel in Jesus' resurrection. So even with this being ridiculous, I think it's important for us today to recognize how the resurrection is like the quintessence of the gospel. The gospel isn't, hey, God made you and he died for you. It doesn't stop there. Otherwise, the biographies would have ended with the crucifixion. The resurrection is what makes the news good. Yet, this idea of being raised from the dead, even though it was accepted by some Jewish sects, some sects of Israel, this profile of a Messiah that will die and rise again was ridiculous. And for the Greeks, it was foolish. Why would you even want to be raised back to the dead? Everybody knows that death is the soul's liberation from the body. Why do you want to go back? Some of us who feel the groans and aches in our own body can say, actually, it resonates with me a little bit. But I'm going to tell you, how the resurrection is better news. So you have uh, this ridiculous belief, yet it's being, made all, it's being made. You have these gospel writers who want nothing more than the listeners and the readers of their gospel biographies to believe the message that they're giving. That's the only thing they want. They want to make sure it's preserved. They want to make sure that only the truth is being shared in this narrative. It wouldn't take much because of this far-reaching claim of the resurrection, it doesn't take much for people to listen and say, eh, it wouldn't take much. Yet it is the most important story known to mankind. And it's an embarrassing story. It's an inconvenient story. It's an unprecedented story. It doesn't make any sense to have the most important story known to mankind be a story of embarrassment, inconvenience, and of unprecedented nature. So I think these are good defenses for this. Because a lot of the opposition to the Bible can sometimes go like this. Look, man, these people made it up. They wrote it down. They were trying to get some power for themselves so they concocted all these stories and, um, you know, make people believe in the most successful lie in all of human history for 2,000 years. Um, and then the thing they got for it was persecution and death. It's like, great plan. Um, so let's start with the embarrassment. You look at this passage, this verse here. The Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Who do you not see in this verse? Who do you not see at Jesus' burial? Who do you not see at his crucifixion? Jesus' boys. The ones who are throughout the entire gospel. Jesus is doing the cool stuff with the people and they're behind them. Sometimes they get a little bit overzealous, like, hey, kid, get out of here, man. You're not here. You know, they start getting prideful, but they are with Jesus the whole time. And things get a little shaky and they run. Cowards. 
That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. It's so embarrassing that sometimes we get a little overzealous in reading the scriptures like, man, I would have never denied Jesus like Peter did. I would have been there the whole time. Because that's embarrassing, Peter. And so now we even at the tomb, the burial site, just to be with your rabbi, you're still not there. One of the criterion for determining the historicity or validity of a claim by someone is recognizing any elements of embarrassment in their narrative. It's less likely that somebody's lying if they include things that are embarrassing. People don't do that. I mean, you're going to lie. You may as well self, make yourself look good. Doesn't mean it's true. But the veracity of someone's statement is definitely weighed by whether or not there are embarrassing details. In this story, when it comes to the power grabbers, it's embarrassing. It's also inconvenient. Same verse. Who do you see in this verse? See the women. Same ones you see at the crucifixion. The ones you don't hear about all throughout following Jesus. You hear stories, but you don't see them tailing behind Jesus as the disciples are. But there they are. There they were at the cross. Here they are now. This is significant for a specific reason. The first century woman, and even before that, testimony is futile. The Jewish Talmud says any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. We have the most significant story, the most significant message that needs to be delivered to all of humankind, and it's given to vessels who are untrustworthy. The gospel of Jesus Christ entrusted to the testimony of those who aren't to be trusted in that context. Why would you do that? The most significant message. Why would you make it the women who deliver this message? It's already hard to believe. Why would you make it even harder to believe? Unless that's just the way it went down. Unless they're just telling you what happened. It's also unprecedented. Jesus the King by Tim Keller, which is a very good commentary on the book of Mark, and it's been referenced in this sermon series. And uh, even if you haven't had a chance to read it with the conclusion of the series today, I, I suggest you read it. It's very good on its commentary of Mark. This is what Tim Keller says in chapter 18. In the decades before and after Jesus' life and death, there were dozens of messianic movements. In almost every case, the messianic leader was killed, in many cases by execution. So that's public, in front of everybody. And after the leader's death, each of these movements invariably collapsed. Only one didn't collapse. Not only did it not collapse, it exploded. This doesn't make sense. 
I talked about this, I think, a few sermons ago, how the embarrassing nature of Jesus' death. When you think about a rabbi, a venerated individual who's lofted up, even deified over time, his death is just so, in an ancient sense, cowardly. Weeping in the garden, his crying out on the cross, and then it's being handed over into death. And it's after that that the biggest movement known to mankind explodes. It doesn't make any sense unless something happened after the death. We have to reconcile this claim that these power grabbers who sought to dupe the world for 2,000 years, establish believe lies so that they could get power, you know, however that makes sense. You got to reconcile that with the embarrassing narrative of their cowardice just being all throughout the scriptures and even the text today. You have to reconcile that with the most significant message known to mankind to be distributed to mankind for the salvation of mankind is carried by vessels who were deemed untrustworthy in their time. You have to reconcile that with a failed rabbi and failed messiah sparking the single greatest movement in all of human history. Hinging on the fact that he's still alive today. You can visit burial sites of people. You can visit Gandhi, Buddha. As a matter of fact, Muhammad's burial site is the most venerated burial site in the world. It could possibly not make sense. It's like, what? How does that make sense? He came like 700 years after Christ, and, you know, it's not true <laughs> what Islam teaches. How come Christ's Gravesite isn't the most venerated, and my, my theory is that because there's no one there. Who are you going to see? We've read that story already about people going to see him, and there's nobody there. They go to the world now. So watch this, watch It's quite common for our testimonies to be centered on our trials and what we've experienced in life. This is significant, it's tied to the resurrection because it's the resurrection that actually identifies us. We, this new identity we get in Christ as part of the new creation, it's attached directly to the resurrection. But something that we can get wrong, I use that loosely as far as just modern day Christianity, is this testimony, what the testimony is. And, and typically the testimony is, uh, it, it's a timeline of your life. And basically what it can do sometimes is just tell the details of your life. Hey, hey things were bad at this point, or I was bad at this point, this thing happened, and, and now my life looks differently. Even if that thing is you crying out to God. That's typically how it goes. Testimony. My life looks this way. It went this direction. This thing happened, and now it's different. And there's a lot of more tradition-based aspects of how we identify ourselves. Sometimes tradition is what determines our profession, and I don't think that's right. I don't think that ought to be the case. Examples, maybe you grew up Christian, your family's Christian, 
you've been going to a Christian church, therefore your profession, I'm Christian, or uh, maybe you've never been about religion and then something big happened in your life and you found religion. Well, I don't know what that statement even means, but you found religion and you, you like the community of people. You like the music. You like being able to be a good person and they attach that being a good person to another person and the scriptures and stuff like that. You like it. And so therefore your profession is I'm Christian. Or maybe you have children and you want your children to be decent people and religion does that. It helps you to be decent people as long as a religion isn't being an indecent person. But in Christianity obviously can provide you that. So therefore, the profession becomes, I'm Christian. And I'm purposefully belaboring this point a bit because there's a growing trend of people making a profession based off of events that have happened in their life. And we see the downfall of that in deconstruction today. They've made a profession off of events that have taken place in their life, and then very real tragic events take place in their life, and their profession changes. I've been hurt. I've been abandoned. I, I haven't once heard somebody say, hey, I was combing through the text, and I don't think the evidence of the resurrection is real. I haven't heard that. I've heard an event. Meanwhile, the profession we make as Christians is based off of the event in Jesus' life. His death and being raised from the dead. Paul says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you'd be saved. Deconstruction is different from the profession. Deconstruction says, this person hurt me, so therefore I am no longer making a profession of faith. And I don't see how they're related. Deconstruction will say that this community seems to be hypocritical, so therefore, I'm no longer making a profession of faith. This person abused me and scarred me permanently. I am no longer making a profession of faith. Meanwhile, the resurrection, what that provides is to say, this person hurt me. I cannot wait until we sit in the new Jerusalem as siblings worshiping the Lord as one unified. This person scarred me permanently. I cannot wait until the healing of Christ is fully actualized in the New Jerusalem where the murderer and the idolater and the abuser don't have a home there. The resurrection provides hope. If your profession is in your health, all you need is unhealthiness to deny your profession. The resurrection provides hope. Full health, glorified health, glorified bodies. Jesus tells his disciples after he appears to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized, baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I don't want to miss the point that Jesus raises from the dead and he says, now go and tell them the good news. I'm alive. I'm alive. I've risen from the grave. This is the rhythm that we see <clears throat> in this text. Jesus calls his disciples. Um, he calls them. They're intrigued. You know, no one ever really saw us as qualified to follow a rabbi, plus you're calling us. We're intrigued. We're a bit dumbfounded, but intrigued. Then Jesus is walking around with them. He performs all the stuff. He does all the cool stuff. And the disciples are excited. 
They become even a little bit overzealous and prideful, like, who's the greatest? And get out of here. You don't belong in this circle. But they're still intrigued and still a bit dumbfounded. Then Jesus is captured and the disciples scatter. And they're fearful. And Jesus dies and they remain scattered and fearful. But then Jesus raises from the dead and his disciples run headfirst towards the gates of hell with love, power, and sound judgment. The resurrection is what makes good news, uh, makes the gospel good news, the resurrection. It gives us assurance of victory. It's the resurrection where we see a lot of language regarding power and freedom being actualized. Matthew 28, after Jesus raises from the dead, he says, all authority is mine, all power is mine. Acts 2, it's Jesus being raised that loosened the grip of death. Acts 17, it's that the raising of Jesus that gives us the assurance of God. Romans 6, it's Christ being raised that brings uh, and sets us free from the dominion of death. It's for the sake of our own hearts and for the sake of us being able to share the gospel of good news that we need to see. The resurrection is the linchpin in the faith. The profession is that I believe that Jesus lived, died, and was raised to life, and that I live to him today. Paul says even further in 1 Corinthians, if Christ wasn't raised, your faith is futile. You're wasting your time. You're still in your sins. A big claim. Oftentimes, we, we know the word gospel. You'll hear it. You say, Jesus died for you. And Paul is saying, hey, if that's where it ended, you're still in sin. And you're wasting your time. If he just died, that's not it. It's that he's raised. That brings hope. And new life begins in him. It's where we find our identity. But... The resurrection also kills guilt, and it kills death. Romans 6.3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that Jesus, as Christ, was raised from the dead by the glory of God. We, too, might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's because of the resurrection that we too shall be raised from death. The Christian lives a life and they still fail. They still do these things. They feel guilty as a result of it. They look at their hands and they say, man, I keep doing these things that I don't want to do. And the resurrection of Christ is a reminder that you have newness of life in Christ. And those things that you feel guilty for now have been punished already in his body. And now you walk free as he walks free from the grave. And if you understand double jeopardy, you can't be convicted of the same crime twice. Right, should I go milk? The resurrection kills death, quite obviously. The ultimate goal of sin is death. The ultimate goal of everything that you struggle with isn't to commit that act, it's death. That's the ultimate goal. 
So it's great and it's hopeful and it's praiseworthy that we have a God that says, I want to go through the human experience so that the ultimate goal of sin can overtake me. Then I can overtake it. And now my people have nothing to fear. The resurrection kills death. Death for the Christian is sleep. So lastly, having a resurrection life. The Christian must have resurrection thinking, uh, resurrection thinking, pursue resurrection relationships, and walk by resurrection faith. Resurrection thinking, Colossians 3, Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Oftentimes, a lot of our issues, if not all for the Christian, are a result of our minds being on things that are below, not on above. I mean, the culmination is death itself. Mourning is a part of the Christian life, right? Sorrow is a part of the Christian life. But hope doesn't get drowned out. Mourning and weeping endure for a season, but joy comes again. A lot of our anxiety, a lot of the depression, a lot of the hopelessness and despair is a result of our minds not being in the heavens where Christ is seated. What are we feeding our mind? What do you feed it? Do you often sit with the resurrected Christ? Taking thoughts captive. Pursue resurrection relationships. Don't sow seeds of division. 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Skipping to 16. From now on, therefore, no one regard, uh, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do we see ourselves that way in Christ? The old is dead and gone. Behold, the new has come. Do we see one another that way? I think there's a lot of things jockeying for our attention in the world today on how we ought to view ourselves and one another. And therefore, our relationship pursuit isn't rooted in resurrection reality. Now we've been trained very well to be able to look at a person and identify everything that divides us. Regard no one according to the flesh. As siblings in Christ, we have been united. Walk by resurrection faith. Be led by the Lord and not our emotions. 2 Timothy 1. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel power of God. See, the disciples turned from fear to fearlessness. They, they, they were transformed from cowards to courageous leaders. And it's the resurrection that performed such a transformation. The resurrection brought hope. The resurrection brought fearlessness when it comes to the ultim uh, ultimatum of death. Jesus is raised from the dead. You trust in this. 
And the Holy Spirit indwells you as a reminder that you're hidden in his resurrection and you too will share in his resurrection. This is where I'll end. The resurrection life is quite significant from what we see on the left side of the Bible. On the left side of the Bible, obviously, in the beginning, you see in the Old Testament fellowship with God is broken, and, and God gives his Ten Commandments to Israel, and the misconception for people in Christianity as they observe Christianity today is the Ten Those are our rules. Those are our rules we have to follow in order for God to love us, and uh, and they, they couldn't be more wrong. The Ten Commands were handed down to say, you can't live in a way that's pleasing to me. This is what perfection looks like, and you can't do it. You need a Savior. And the Savior comes and he dies. As Darren said, the death that we deserve. And he's raised to life that his perfection and his righteousness is granted to us who are hidden in him, who see him as Lord. And there was another debate that I saw. And the debate was what Christianity has to offer the world. You don't need to be Christian in order to be a good person, which I agree, uh, to do things that are moral. Uh, I agree. And the argument was that Christianity has nothing to offer me and my desire to do good things for people. What can a Christian do that a non-Christian can't do? I don't murder. I don't steal. What can a Christian do that a non-Christian can't do? And it's because of the resurrection life. The answer is, please God. The Christian can bring pleasure to God. Without Jesus' resurrection and being hidden in his identity, your good deeds are filthy to God but it's through Christ's deeds that have been given to us that we find his pleasure and we thank him for the resurrection. Let me pray. Lord, we have your pleasure, God. It's in Jesus Christ the one who will save us from this body of death. That we have hope. The aches and the groans of the human life, God, the futility of it, the finality of it, is completely transformed because of the res resurrection, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that we have hope that we will dwell with you forever and with one another forever gathering around your throne, living in your city as you dwell among us. Father, I pray that that hope would send us out into the world as you sent your disciples. And it will be by our lives that the world would see that you are alive, that you've been risen. Bury this in our hearts, Lord. Reflect it in our lives and receive glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Every week we have a reminder of Jesus' death. And his death is that his body was broken so that our bodies would experience true healing. That his blood was spilled 
so that we would be cleansed forever, once and for all. And we take this reminder as a reminder of our identity, who we are in Christ, and the ability to live a resurrected life today unto God. Let's take and eat and be, rem- uh, be reminded together.